Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Tuesday, January 17th, 2023. I am John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. With me as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Media commentary columnist and American Enterprise Institute fellow, Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor and author of The Rise of the New Puritans, Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Um... Maybe it's me and uh, a seasonal affective disorder is uh, getting to me, even though it's perfectly sunny today. So I can't claim that it's because it's overcast and it's not even that cold. But um, uh, are you guys feeling kind of a grinding sense of uh, things uh, these days? Like, like things aren't terrible, but they're not great. And we're kind of just sort of like going along and the Republicans stink and the Democrats stink and Biden is remains extremely personally unimpressive and gives speeches in which he obviously has the name of somebody right in front of him and he forgets what the name is and or he says, you know, stupid things, which isn't about senility, just about being stupid and. I don't know. I'm 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 feeling a little like um anhedonic here about the present moment. Um don't say malaise. Don't, don't say malaise. I, I said anhedonic, <laughs> okay. which is by the way, little trivia question for you. The original title of Annie Hall, Woody Allen's movie Annie Hall was Anhedonia, which means an inability to feel pleasure. So um I don't know why I told you that, because it's whatever that would have been an interesting title for a romantic comedy nonetheless but you're right in that i mean look i'm always pessimistic but but there are usually forces parties in the country who are pumped about something right um you know whether they were obama fans or trump fans or or whomever excited about you know this initiative or that no one's particularly Sight that uh, things are heading their way, things are going their way. That that. that but you could change. see that you could see that as a as a good first sign that the politicization of everything has reached its end point, right? The, I mean, after after the pandemic, after the hyper politicization, hyper polarization, maybe people are finally going, ugh, like why do we have to argue about every single thing? Why why do we have to turn everything into a political or cultural war? I mean. I felt that way about the gas stove thing. I was like, really? This is the new culture war? Gas stoves? Like, we're really reaching here, people. There's plenty we can be angry about. There's plenty of principled objections one can make to certain policies. But I perhaps we can see this as a as a sort of early sign that maybe people are getting away from that sort of politicization. But that's but they've forgotten what up. to do otherwise. That's true. Yeah. So that's, they're at a loss. Yeah. yeah. Well, gas stove thing is interesting because um, it's, a, it's a species of... Um, uh, political bubble ship in this sense, uh, which is there are these ideas that float around both on the right and on the left, think tank ideas, wonky ideas, technocratic ideas that uh, people have academic conferences about or they discuss, you know, practical efforts to implement certain types of ideologically driven policies that would be helpful and then they get the reins of power and they, you know, they're they're working in the innards of the government. And then they start implementing these ideas. And on the left in particular, um, the hilarious effort after the announcement that we were that there was going to be some sort of a move on on gas stoves, which was at first for people to say, no, that's not true. Right wingers have, you know, come up with this. Of course, it's true. I've been he I've been hearing about it for a decade from you know greens of my acquaintance, of people who bought conduction ovens because they think gas, you know, they they don't want to use gas and it's not safe. It can blow up your house, and it has. My kid has allergies, and there may be something in the air when you use gas. To, there's some kind of a chemical in the air that can induce terrible things and all of that so that was a real thing it wasn't it was sort of like yeah, yeah i know i know you also you know compost your food and you do like I, it's a thing that people do so when it turned out that 
the Biden administration was sort of flirting with these ideas, it came as no surprise to me. What was interesting was the kind of mainstream response of people who aren't that plugged in, who were like afraid. I think they were like, ah, right wingers are doing it again. They're making stuff up to go at us because they know perfectly well that they have on their left flank these greens who want to ruin everything and they and that they say things that your mother back in ohio is like what fox is right about what they're saying about the democrats look they want to take my gas stove away and it it was interesting because you can see how democratic triumphalism is always sitting on a knife's edge which is they're just waiting for some lunatic idea that bubbled up from the, you know, at more activist left to come along and hand Republicans something to pounce on. And they, and so their, their playbook is to say, this isn't real. They're just pouncing, but it is real. And so the third, fourth, fifth day stories and columns are like, you know what? This is a pretty good idea. We shouldn't have gas stoves anymore. I mean, sure, Republicans are pouncing, but let's really examine this, whether there should be gas gas stoves. It's a very clever way to get a completely obscure or insane idea into the mainstream, right? And and we have an ongoing joke on our Twitter thread that, that Noah always says, he's like, it's not happening, Republicans are pouncing, it is happening and it's good for you. And anyone who denies this is a conspiracy theorist. Like there's the stages that it happens for all of these things. I mean- the last time Republicans were implicated in in something similar to this was about 15 years ago when out of nowhere there was this announcement that incandescent bulbs were being um, sort of driven out of the marketplace in favor of longer-lasting LED LCD bulbs, right? Well, it turned out that there was a sort of corporate welfare – there was a conspiracy of interests here that certain types of green types or consumer activist types who think that incandescent bulbs are bad because they burn out too quickly. And if you buy one of these bulbs, it'll last for four years. So why are we even selling these bulbs that are, you know, but that um, GE and other light bulb makers were really excited about the prospect of essentially forcing people to adapt and adopt a new technology that they had, that they had invested billions of dollars in the manufacture of that weren't taking off. And that they and that therefore you had kind of like corporate interests that aligned with the right together with consumer advocates and, you know, greenies on the left. And everybody else in America is going, what the what? No. What do you mean? I can't have an incandescent light bulb. What? What? Like, you know, so in this case, you wonder, Okay, so whose interest is being is there a convection oven? lobby like what's the corporate well you should assume there's a lobby for everything john right (laughs) no you wrote about this a bit i mean is there some kind of a oven is there some sort of it not not ideologically driven like not because they don't like gas is there an electric oven lobby i I'm not familiar. I mean, there are electric lobbies. There are lobbies yeah. for for electric companies that are angling for subsidies, <laughs> just like every industry. And that's kind of one of the funny aspects of this is that there's the, uh, so many rear guard actions. But one of them was, oh, all these talking points about how people really, really like their gas ranges because they you know moderate temperature and you can you can actually cook at temperature ranges that make elevated foods. Um, that's all driven by uh, industry talking points when it's precisely the opposite. There was this grassroots movement that erupted out of nowhere from people had to actually articulate why this thing they use and have been using for decades, which is superior to its alternatives. They had to actually articulate why that was, whereas the other side had to come up with all these convoluted, quasi-scientific, extremely dubious rationales for what they wanted. And they were fed talking points from higher ups and some of them actually freelanced, which is the, we talked about this and this is the weirdest phenomenon ever where right? the, the dictate was demonize gas stoves. And then they just had to freelance talking points. Like, I don't know if it's just as bad as idling your car in your house, 
which is how people kill themselves. It's it's the most mad, and it was said on CNN by Bill Weir, who's an investigative reporter. People who know better just decided, well, I've got to contribute. This is my contribution to the news cycle here. And it's utterly bizarre. And as we've learned a week later, ineffectual. Just, it's speaking of, of cars, it's like sitting in your driveway, putting it in neutral and just revving the gas as hard as you possibly can for no apparent reason whatsoever. Just demonstrates, I guess, that the car works. So maybe this is one of the reasons that I'm feeling this um, ennui. I'm not going to use the M word. I'm still not using the M word. But thank you, ennui, thank you. Um, which is that we just are constantly back in the same kind of conversation. It's like the highly controversial last episode of Seinfeld. If you remember when they're they're put on trial for all of the the bad behavior that they had and anti-social antics that they had been up to uh, in the show's nine year run or whatever. Yeah. It was a and clip they show. End up in, Talk about what? just, it was a clip show. No, but then, which is what no, you they, do no. when you, which is what you do when the, you want to the, give the writers a break. No, 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 no. This was the lo- final episode of the most I popular remember. sitcom of the night. It was not, not a clip show. Yet. Everybody came every day. They, they brought everybody ending. back. Yeah. Right. They brought everybody and back. And then played the clips. Larry David, who wrote the episode. Anyway, they end up in the at the end. They're sitting in the jail cell for. They have to be in jail together for a year in this small town, and they just start listlessly reciting all of their soundbite lines from you know previous seasons. You know, you know, are you the master of your domain? And they sort of chuckle listlessly at each other. Ah, and then the camera pulls way back. I mean, it has this effect. It's like. Okay, we're doing this again. Now we're going to have the gas stove cycle. In three weeks, we'll have another cycle. We're going to hear another thing about how uh, Trump did this, and then Biden did that, and and then, you know, the the same four prosecutors are going to go on Nicole Wallace's show and say, boy, they got Trump now. You know, and then the same three MAGA people are going to talk on Laura Ingram's show about how they discovered, you know, they discovered a pen, a reappearing, disappearing ink pen in Maricopa County. And it never ends. It's like we're having the same conversations over and over and over again to no well, there's, apparent result. There's something else. I, I hate to even bring this up when we spoke about it in some sense yesterday. But I mean, I still think the pandemic broke something. Um, that is not yet fixed. Um, uh, I mean, several things, but but it's also something um, that's hard to sort of see uh, in the sense that I don't see people invested in the country, in the culture, in, in much of anything in the way they were just before. Uh, but for a whole sort of, you know, conglomeration of reasons and and things that that had to do as as Noah points out in his piece sort of tan that were tangentially related to the to the to the pandemic and to the lockdowns and to everything that that sort of cascaded out of them um I think we're we're still we haven't found our footing no matter what no matter who declares what's over no matter what the numbers say um there's something something's been deeply undermined I mean this is a focus exclusively on almost exclusively on politics, right? Because if you survey the landscape and industry and science, <laughs> it's a rather vibrant period. I was reading yesterday about the degree to which we have uh, scientists have harnessed the powers of a lightning bolt, you literally direct a lightning bolt where you want it to go and generate some power out of it. And this is a pretty interesting discovery paired with the fact that we've created a teeny star that we can generate some power out of. I mean, this is, these are, you know, Pretty interesting developments that uh, break your ennui if you're inclined to look at him. But, but they're totally the, outliers. I mean, science scientists are going to plug away whatever they're doing through throughout anything, you know. Well, and like, I and I think Abe's on to something with regard to kind of cultural uh, uh, moods, if you will. I refuse to say vibe, just like John refuses to say malaise. I will not say vibe. But they uh, 
I, I've been struck in recent years, uh, coming out of the pandemic in particular, how there's been this kind of fatigue studies uh, movement or this elevation of just rest. And it's like, I'm going to do this radical thing. I'm going to take a nap. And it's, I mean, I'm kind of mocking it, but there's a sense in which that is a signal that people are now uh, elevating and praising a behavior that's that's the most decisively opting out thing you can do in a moment by moment basis to just be like, you know what? I'm going to bed. I just, I can't take it anymore. <laughs> I am heading to my bed. And I, that is a radical act because I don't get enough rest. And, you know, look, we are a fairly sleep deprived people. So I'm not arguing against the need for rest, but it's been politicized in a cultural sense by making it something that like, I mean, there's now these people who go around consulting about how, you know, this radical revolution and rest. And it's far different from just say five or 10 years ago when Ariana Huffington was running around yammering at people to get healthier sleep, like sleep hygiene. It's a different thing. It's a kind of cultural opting out that's then elevated to a radical act when it's really a very passive thing to do. It's a necessary thing to rest. Yes. But it's been elevated in a weird way that I think does speak to something odd in the cultural moment. Well, I don't even know that people need their rest. I mean, you know, you look at it from another perspective, and it, it's a kind of uh, national embrace of depression. I mean, taking yeah, it, it could your, be taking yes. to your sleeping couch is mm -hmm. depression. That's not, you know, the fainting couch all over. Again, what I yeah. need is a good, you know, 15 minute nap. So I'm refreshed and I can I can be twice as productive as I would be otherwise. That's not what this is about or what quiet quitting is about or 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 all of that. I mean, you had pol you had policies implemented during the pandemic that had people. Uh, available, it, it was okay for people to receive as much as 99 weeks of unemployment. That is almost two years of government support, welfare for adults, able-bodied adults who supposedly could not find work when we know that after the first six months of the, you know, uh, worst lockdowns or whatever we want to call them, there was a massive labor shortage in the United States and we, there weren't sufficient numbers of workers. I was talking to a, someone who runs a small medical business. Uh, I, I've heard this now from two different, these are sort of family practices. Okay. For family medical practices, one here in New York, one in Pennsylvania. And um, the thing that they find, so they're, so they're people who hire, you know, six, seven office staffers um can't can't get them uh they can't get them they 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 come they interview uh they work a week and quit or they never show up apparently you know by doing so or by going on indeed and signing up for an interview or even having some kind of a zoom or something like that some record of it this helps the process by which you apply for unemployment. I mean, you know, the old joke about people going to the unemployment office and having every week and having to say, yes, I look for work last week. Well, now apparently you need to offer some kind of proof in some places. So this constitutes proof. These are, you know, perfectly good, calm jobs. Maybe they're not exciting, maybe not. But if you can get unemployment at a level that is pretty close to what you would get from this office work, or, you know, maybe it's not close, but you know, okay, so then you also don't have to work. You have this competition now inside. Now, it's not 99 weeks anymore. But now it's like 26 or 32, depending on the state you're in. That's half a year. Yeah, it's subsidizing and, idleness when, at a time yeah, when there are yeah, jobs available. So we have, on the one hand, we're subsidizing. On the other hand, we have this kind of weird developed philosophy that what you should be is an 18th century... <laughs> character out of an 18th century British novel, the man of sentiment who cannot go around in the world because it's just too hard. He's too sensitive. Smells assault him. Noise is terrible. The air quality makes him sick. It's a, This, by the way, is a character who is a figure of praise, not mockery, in 18th century British fiction, late which was, you know, the first stirrings of the kind of anti-industrial revolution um, ethos that we still see today, which is like, well, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a uniquely, you know, I'm a cultivated person. I can't going around where all these pe poor people are makes literally makes me sick. I need to stay 
in my, you know, again, on my sick bed, you know, it's like, this is, was a real thing. And it's now become a kind of democratized thing. And it's pretty horrifying. I don't know how you get out of the cycle exactly, but the idleness and then the, and then the, um, the allure of home, right? The allure of home, which is you got your video games there. You got your hundred inch screen there. You got your sound system, very little is driving people out into the world. And that's depressing. So maybe I'm just responding to everybody else being depressed, you know, in the same way. I don't know. What's, I mean, we had this great piece by Barton Swaim a couple months ago called The War on Work. And he talked about this. And of course, one of the things that we've always understood about work, or at least as part of the American ethos and, you know, caricatured as the protestant ethic and all of that is that uh work is ennobling in the sense that even if the work itself isn't compelling to you necessarily you are supporting yourself you're putting food on the table you're 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 supporting your family you are providing a good role model to your kids or whatever and all of that, and that this is something that makes you a better, stronger, healthier, m more resilient, more praiseworthy person. But and this is now what... we don't praise such people in mu in much the same way. Well, it goes to an earlier theme we had uh, a couple of years ago about like you're a sucker if you believe that now, right? And that feeling comes from if you are a hardworking, responsible adult in this country. You look around and you see people breaking the law, behaving abominably, just otherwise acting like terrible human beings and with no consequences, right? So, I mean, we were talking before we started taping about, you know, shoplifting and sort of petty crime and what does that, how does that change people's attitude about where they live? It it does obviously change your sense of safety and and like that you live in a, a law abiding area. But it also, I think, really does breed cynicism when you see, you know, I go to my CVS and a guy walks in and just takes whatever he wants and walks out and nobody does anything. Everybody's just like, well, I guess that's what it's like living in a city. I'm like, that's ridiculous. <laughs> like somebody should the cops are not going to come for that. Maybe they'll file a report. They'll submit it for insurance, whatever. But eventually what that means is that that CVS gets robbed consistently enough, they're going to close down. And then I don't have a CVS to go to. Fine. I got to okay, walk further. Should, but this is, but this, uh... the, the underlying feeling though, is that it's like, wait a minute, why should I abide by the rules when everybody else isn't? And in a weird way, Trump actually echoed that thought politically when he was president and obviously when he was a candidate, but you really don't want to see everyday Americans embracing that idea because that becomes a sort of, you know, I'm out for myself. I cannot rely on institutions or communities or anyone else. It's just, you know, anything goes. And that's that's bad. That's not a good way to run a society. OK, so we should get uh, we should dig deep into that. But before we do that, I want to commend to everybody Dan Senor's Call Me Back podcast available on Apple, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever you find podcasts. His latest one uh, is very revelatory. Uh, he has had on several times the uh, economist, uh, businessman, Wall Street titan, Muhammad Al-Aryan, um, Al who's now the president of Queens College uh, at Cambridge, and uh, and also on the boards of the National Bureau of Economic Research. He was the co-head of PIMCO, the largest hedge fund in the world for 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 many years. And, uh, and these conversations between Dan... And LRN are just incredibly fascinating. The big takeaway from from this one, I would say, which also gets something we'll talk about in a bit, is uh, that um, the economic outlook of the world is now completely dependent on uh, what is going on in China. And what is going on in China at present is very unnerving because... Uh, there does not seem to be a competent hand on on the tiller. So the the uh, years of incredibly tight COVID restrictions, followed by the complete relaxation of COVID restrictions, without any preparation or forethought or uh, process of um, really developing immunities within the Chinese population, all of that have led to a circumstance in which uh, this kind of um, creative factory for the rest of the world is now undergoing extreme 
what will be some form of extreme social turmoil that will impact everybody else's economic circumstance. And that China, the second largest economy in the world, is still behaving as though it is a small economy uh, that does not exist in an interdependent relationship with its people that it supplies and the people who the people who buy from it, the people who invest in it, um, and that this is uh, you know extremely self defeating and uh, and will have very serious consequences. It's a fascinating conversation. That's Dan Sinor's Call Me Back podcast with Muhammad Al and You can get it. Just go. As I said to Apple, Google Play, Stitch, or wherever you find podcasts, listen and be enlightened. So we'll talk about China a little later, but let's talk about this shoplift, this this thing that you brought up, Christine, which is the shoplifting crisis. Um, two two disparate pieces of data um, in my neighborhood uh, on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. There is a Rite Aid at 96th and Broadway. It is close. Amsterdam. It is closing. Why is it closing? Its manager said, look, it's been three years of shoplifting and we just, you know, there's nothing left. Like we can't keep anything on the shelves. And if we have to lock everything away behind these plastic gates and nobody wants to shop here anymore and it's just useless and we're closing. And then Noah was watching, were you watching, watching CNBC or MSNBC or something like that? Noah? Well, watching is a strong term. Yeah, I, I saw a clip came across my transom uh, from Chris Hayes's program <clears throat> in which he had ruminated on a, a Walgreens chief financial officer's statement, which was the following quote. I think the shrink is built in the forecast. We're probably, you know, maybe we cried too much last year when we were hitting numbers that were 3.5% of sales. We're down in the lower twos, call it the mid two five two six kind of range now. This is a call with investors that Walgreens CEO made, and he was describing the CFO. thought process, CFO, describing the thought process inside his organization when it pulled out of San Francisco proper, uh, one of several institutions to do that. Um, and Chris Hayes locked in on this comment as evidence that this was all made up, that this was the equivalent of the gas stove controversy, that the right just invented this idea that San Francisco had become an untenable market for major retailers, said the following, Chris Hayes, quote, this is something everyone needs to bookmark in their minds next time you hear giant corporations warning about a, scare quotes, rampant crime wave, suggesting that this is all made up. It's not all made up. It's not even close to all made up. I mean, Walgreens was one of 11 major retailers to pull out of this uh, this marketplace, one of the largest marketplaces in America. Um, I lost the, the statistic, but it was something to the to the tune. One of the top 10 marketplaces, the whole San Francisco metro area. And. You don't just pull out of a marketplace like that. You have a responsibility, a fiduciary responsibility to investors. You can't just do this on a whim. You certainly can't do it as a response to conspiratorial thinking among a constituency that isn't even relevant to the marketplace you're talking about. Uh, it's it's grasping at straws to a degree that should be embarrassing if you had a responsibility to an audience and a, and, a, and thought of yourself as a responsible broadcaster to be able to present a, an even-handed version of events. This is a manipulation of the audience based on, an, an, a, on a pull quote that doesn't even have the context and doesn't even have sufficient context to understand what he was talking about. And based on your own, the evidence of your own eyes, it doesn't even make any sense. I mean, I think this goes again to this uh, question of whether or not there's something in the air that is sucking the life out of American public and civic life. Because if you are oh. a city dweller, yeah, I I, <clears throat> I think, I mean, this may sound silly to some people and it's anecdotal mostly, but I think the my experiences, people's experiences at pharmacies today are a really telling microcosm of what's going on. Everything is locked up. The most basic things are locked up because they're being stolen. Uh, there are drug shortages uh, for various reasons supply chain reasons, mis mismanagement reasons. There are pharmacist shortages. They don't have enough staff. So they send uh, uh, their, their pharmacists from one location to another location um, because they're short without warning. 
they send them without warning. So you never know what's open, what's closed. Uh, supposedly, this may have to do with, quote, pharmacist burnout. Um, uh, burnout is a is a, a, a not an not an irrelevant uh, term to what we're talking about here. And then and then all the customer service is um, is sort of. Uh, worse than than ai i mean it's it's you get nothing you get the full uninvested um treatment no that's absolutely right it's almost it is worse than dealing with an ai because they're choosing to treat you as a, as as not a, a fellow human being because they're so whether it's burnout or whatever i would add to that that in a lot of these jurisdictions where um, theft, particularly retail theft, which is often, by the way, organized criminal rings of theft where people come in, sweep everything out, and then you go a few blocks down the road and they're reselling it at a higher rate and taking the cash as profit. So there are some organized theft rings and then there's just regular petty crime. And a lot of these jur jurisdictions, lawmakers who are who are progressive minded are trying to actually define crime down. So they're they're either not either the progressive prosecutors are not prosecuting these low level crimes in many cases, they out of choice. But also they're trying to rewrite laws to make things misdemeanors or sort of not even listed as crimes that used to be considered crime. Look, stealing is wrong. You shouldn't steal. We teach kids this from a very young age. Like the, it's wrong to steal. But in some jurisdictions, in the eyes of the law, if there's neither enforcement of that fact or laws that state it is bad to do this and that there will, you will face punishment, is stealing wrong anymore? No, right. people are kind of, you know, there's a lot of justifications on, look, I'm, I still remember AOC claiming that people were looting stores because they needed to buy bread for their families. There, there are a lot of people in this country <laughs> that actually believe that's the motivation. It's ridiculous. I want to go back briefly to this Walgreens comment because I'm probably going to write on this today because Chris Hayes is too smart to, not to know what he's doing. He's being dishonest. Even the CEO is saying in an investor call, maybe our sales dropped by a point, a full percentage point. Looking at Walgreens operating income from this year, according to in October, they reported income. Operating income from operations in fiscal 22 decreased by 40%, $1.4 billion compared to $2.3 billion a year ago, a full point. When you're talking about $2 billion is enough money to get you fired, is enough money for a board to say, we got to get rid of you. And Chris Hayes knows this. He, if he doesn't, he could investigate it. He could certainly explain to his audience, which maybe doesn't understand the dynamics of uh, how a, a major corporation, a publicly traded corporation like Walgreens operates and what the margins are. But he didn't do that. What he wanted to do was give you some rhetorical ammunition to say that your environment is lying to you, that this is all made up. This is all a conspiracy. Look, He's accepting paranoia in his audience. And paranoia, we've been trained to understand from hours and hours of MSNBC broadcast is kind of dangerous. This all started with a piece uh, in the Atlantic last year by Amanda Mull, whose um, uh, whose journalism deserves some kind of enshrinement in the annals of idiocy, uh, world historical idiocy, about how there was famously no the author of crisis. the Human Sacrifice in Georgia piece, right? Yes, oh, that's yes. right. That's and, right. And and there is no shoplifting crisis right. as. Written as there was footage on the news every day of these gangs of 18 people marching into various places in California and taking stuff out because the uh, the process the the general decision had been made that uh, you would not prosecute any misdemeanor shoplifting charge if the amount of property taken was less than $900 per person. So take $800 worth and you got off scot-free, right? So, and somehow she contrived to say that this wasn't real because of course, in most of the country, this wasn't happening. As though that's how you judge whether something is happening or not is by saying, well, in only 12% of the cases are they blah, 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 whatever. So there is this. It works in the opposite direction narrative. with gun crime. Gun crime yeah. may be happening in, in American metros, but it's worse everywhere else. So I am. 
I don't know what Chris Hayes knows or whether he's doing this deliberately to be, you know, to be uh, dishonest or not. What I know is the idea is he seems to think that uh, stories about uh, drugstores closing, uh, chain drugstores closing up their drugstores because shoplifting costs them too much money uh, is there to somehow create sympathy for Walgreens as a company, and we shouldn't have any sympathy for any capitalist business, uh, because capitalist businesses like the one come that pays his salary pay him five million dollars a year. Yeah, I know he started his career in these times in Chicago. He now makes five million dollars a year. Maybe he should say a nice word for you know capitalism since it has um, rewarded him. But fine, he doesn't. I don't know what he knows. He's or what a he self-hating know. millionaire, John. There's a lot of them on the left. There's a lot of them. But uh, I, I see no evidence of self-hatred in Chris Hayes. But I don't know what he knows or he doesn't know. What I do know is that um, that the effort to um, deny the evidence of things that are going on right in front of you has become a hallmark of the nightmarish political conversation that now goes on in the United States. People saying most these protests are mostly peaceful while the dollar store is on fire, literally behind the guy who Ali Velshi, while he's saying, no, it's mostly peaceful here. And And there are flames behind him flames. And the dam always breaks. They hold off the truth for as long as they can and then everyone finds out it comes crashing down and then the defense switches and they 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 pass it off onto other people and they say well we didn't say that or well maybe we went too far but it never works you, that's you cannot actually from, shape reality that's the shift from this isn't happening to and it's it's good that it's happening exactly right right that shift right. is yeah maybe it's not mostly peaceful but structural racism the language of the unheard blah 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 well, the inconsistency, I mean, to your to your earlier point about the hypocrisy about how they speak about guns, gun violence versus this, um, you know, there's a lot of concern and I think legitimate concern about things like wage theft, for example, you know, where where hourly workers are getting kind of exploited by their by their employers and by, you know, there are all these sort of ways you can time cards and other things uh, uh take money from employee or or not pay employees their full wage. And so there's this huge, you know, on the left in particular and labor among labor types, like, oh, we've got to fight this. We've got to fight white collar crime. Like there, there's a real focus on crime when they feel like it's going to impact the other side of the aisle. And there isn't an understanding that actually their own constituents, if you look at the people who are most hit by these sorts of, you know, quality of life crimes and certainly gun violence, they're the people who tend to vote Democrat because they live in cities where the, the this kind of behavior ultimately destroys their neighborhood. And the, the vast majority of people in those neighborhoods are law abiding people. And yet they can, that's where they can afford to live or that's where they've chosen to live. And their communities are at risk. And so to be told that, oh, well, if somebody pistol whips you and steals your car here in D.C., they're only going to get, you know, four years. Maybe, maybe it used to be 15 years was the minimum sentencing. Well, we're we're revising our crime code because it's too punitive. So let's like reduce the sentencing for violent gun crimes. No, this is not what people want. This is what ideologues want. And it and I think Abe's absolutely right. Eventually the dam breaks and then everyone throws up their hands like, how could this have happened? Well, we can see it happening in real time. I've mentioned this before, but there is a a genuinely great work of historical criminology by uh, the now uh, late uh, Eric Monconan, who was a political scientist at the University of Minnesota called Murder in New York City. And he uh, literally dug into sort of the murder records of New York from the from the time that the city became a consolidated whole in 1898 when Brooklyn became part of the of the city overall. And he discerned this book is was published in the '90s, but he discerned a a pattern that we are now seeing. And I think I'm not a big believer in the cycles of history, which I know is you know Arthur Schlesinger's big thing. But I think that there is a crime cycle, and it works like this: uh, you have a period of low crime, and then at some point that period ends, and uh, uh, criminals start acting with impunity and doing things. It's some whatever. There's some social change, a marker, whatever. Prohibition was the thing that happened in the United States. 
and in part, partially because we criminalized activity that had not been criminal before and people continued to engage in it and then also to create trade around it, built the modern, you know, organized crime system and all of that. Um, but he says, so crime then rises, ordinary people start feeling, um, you know, insecure from it. And then there's a crackdown and there's a period of crackdown and the crackdowns always work. By the way, in New York City right now, um, just to give you an example of how basic this is, um, in the last three months, crime has gone down, particularly on the subways. Why? Because there are cops in the subways. Everywhere you turn, there are cops on platforms in the subways. Crime rate has gone way down in the subways. Why? Because there now are people there to prevent crime from happening or to arrest you if you get it, even if the arrest isn't that marked, or to or to you know phone in that there's a crazy person on the platform or hustle them out of the station or something like that. So it's not that hard to do a crackdown that isn't even you know violent or something like that. But then there's a period of crackdown. And the crackdown goes on and is very successful, and there's there are positive political results from it. And then I hate to put it this way because it sounds, but like liberals get involved, and people start saying, "Well, I don't know. Now criminals are getting treated too harshly, and the treatment is too harsh. There are too many people in jail. People are being thrown in jail for no good reason. Jails are disgusting. You know, they're they're run. They're awful. It's monstrous. It's inhumane." And then you get a period of lessening. You get a period of reform. And reforms are don't send people to jail so much, work on rehabilitation, do, you know, do new kinds of criminological efforts to reach out to people to make sure that they don't get involved in crime in the first place. The end result of which is a new cycle of rising crime and exploding crime. And then there's a crackdown. So where we are now in this cycle is there was a 30-year drop in crime. And in the late 2000, in the sort of late aughts, the argument started to take to get purchase that the crime that the efforts to keep crime down had gone too far. That crime didn't exist anymore for most, and yet all of these draconian measures were still in place, and that it was really unfair. People, there were too many stop and frisks in New York City. There were too many people were cops in in the suburbs where there was no crime were acting you know we're getting like military equipment buying it from the military and then you know they couldn't help but want to use it they were they were getting trigger happy blah 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 and then you had the victories of more liberal people as populations and cities got younger and all of that and then you had this reversion uh to the uh, more liberal, less crime, and and this argument that somehow too many people had been thrown in jail. There were two million people in jail in the United States. That was too many people. You were just basically taking people off the street. There were no black men, young black men in America on the streets of America, and this was terrible. And they, we needed to change. And we're now in the period in which all of those policies have now come home to roost. And at some point in the future there will be a crackdown. The question is when, because it took 20 years from the last liberalization as it began to take purchase in cities in the 1970s. It took 20 years for the society to reverse itself and to say, I really, we, we really don't care enough. It's enough. Not living like this anymore. Throw these people in jail, three strikes and you're out, you know, one ounce, one gram of cocaine on you, you go to jail for 20 years. I don't care what the measures are. Get them off the streets. Are we five years away from that and the political revolution that comes from that? Or are we 15 years away? That I don't know. Well, you see, I mean, interestingly, again, I follow local crime news, uh, you know, pretty, pretty uh, consistently here in D.C. And the shift I've noticed, and this might be a harbinger of things to come about what you're describing, John, is there've been a couple of um, uh, responses of victims where they shoot and sometimes kill the people who are attacking them. So there was one in Northern Virginia with a carjacking. The person had a legal firearm and shot the carjacker. And um, and then mo most recently here in DC, a teenager who uh, with, I, it sounds like another, with a group of teenagers who were trying to break into cars. We don't know any more details than that a, a homeowner who happened, who, everyone involved was African-American, which the police made sure to reveal. 
um, they he he shot and killed end up killing one of the kids. Um, and it's all under there's an investigation ongoing about that. But what was interesting to me is reading the responses, um, you know, on crime listservs and on local neighborhood listservs about this. And there are a lot more people willing to say, you know what? People are sick of this. People are sick of crime. And whatever happens, if if he was under attack and he was defending himself, he owned a legal firearm, which is very difficult to do in the district to begin with. They're saying, you know, maybe this will deter future crime. So the idea, I mean, it was it's not quite Bernie gets on the subway, but there's a sense in which people are actually cheering for ordinary citizens using uh, often, you know, fatal means to to defend themselves. That is a that is a threshold crossed in a very progressive city like D.C., because usually anyone who fires a gun is bad, whether it's a cop or a legal owner of a firearm. But now I think a lot of people, a lot of neighborhoods have seen enough crime and are kind of feel like this is not being handled, that they're cheering responses by citizens. I don't think that's necessarily good. Like I would I don't want to see vigilantes, you know, uh, settling scores on their own. Uh, I would like to see a, a criminal justice system that that backs up the cops who who arrest people and a system, a court system that doesn't keep giving second, third, fourth, fifth chances to repeat offenders who who have demonstrated that they are violent and, and disregard the law. But that is a shift I've noticed in my own city in terms of people's attitudes about crime. I think one difference between the 1970s and 1980s and now um, is that uh, while, you know, it was very hard for the tough on crime argument to break out in certain places in part because uh, there were no, I mean, the argument broke out, but people mostly voted with their feet. I mean, it's not like what they did was they didn't stick around in New York City to try to change things. They just moved to Westchester. They've done that in uh, D.C. too. We lost yeah. a lot of population. Yeah, yes. population in New York City went from 8 million to 7 million in 10 years because people just just left. They weren't, you know, they weren't sticking around, as they say, to fight. Um, uh and then, you know, basically the remnant after after the when crack came in and really did accelerate murder and crime, you know, to levels that the country had never seen before. Uh, that was the opening for like the Giuliani changes and changes all over the place. Uh, the difference now is that you have billions and billions of dollars being thrown at liberal criminological fetishes by the open society institute by all this these progressive pro this progressive prosecutor project that raises all this money these the, the, we talked about with nancy rommelman last week these bail funds where people raise money literally to sort of bail out people because people shouldn't be in jail like violent criminals are getting bail and then they and then they jump bail because they have no connection to the <laughs> And commit more crimes, including murder. Yeah, and that's a pieces, that's a yeah. that's a new thing. There's this kind of private public industry that is now dedicated to, you know, I mean, I would call it, you know, you you say soft on crime. It's not even that. It's kind of this idea that uh, crime is itself a rational response to life circumstances and structural racism and the nature of the way our society works now. And that the and that the society itself has no right to um, police itself in this way because everybody who gets you know thrown in this net who isn't white is somehow reacting to forces beyond their control and they therefore can't be held responsible for their actions. Which is, of course, a condescendingly racist view of people who don't look like you, who aren't yes. white progressives. I mean, it's hor I, I just that that absolutely enrages me when people make that argument as if people cannot be under cannot learn that they are responsible for their own actions and there will be consequences for them yeah anyway but political change comes you know is hard and and uh the polarization of the country and the uh, the fact that the republican party in its current configuration um, is so unappetizing to urban populaces very in various places makes that change even more difficult uh, because there's no counterweight. I'll give you a data point to that because yeah. we're talking about good governance, right? Just basics, keeping the lights on. The stuff the government can do. I think that was Nat Glazer. Yeah. Um, so open Senate seat in Indiana. 
Mitch Daniels has been making some noises. Mitch Daniels, former governor of Indiana, very sober, very serious guy. I think he's the head of Purdue right now. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's, the, he's the outgoing president. Yeah, outgoing he's president amazing. of Purdue. Love Mitch Daniels. Um, yeah. He's probably too smart to run for high office in this particular environment, but it'd be nice if he did. He's a, he's a good, rational guy with a good head on his shoulders, and he, he thinks about financial issues, and we're coming up very fast on a series of financial crises, and it's become a, a focus of this particular Congress because they're attempting to use the debt ceiling and vote in the end of August as leverage to to change the nation's financial trajectory. Um, and then we get an announcement this morning that Representative Jim Banks is jumping in the race for U.S. Senate. Jim Banks is a bomb thrower. He's, um, I think he's a stop the steal guy. Uh, he's an unappetizing candidate, emblematic of a lot of the Republican Party's image problems. And he goes right at Mitch Daniels' throat, who is not in this race. Um, Mitch Daniels made this comment maybe a decade ago, probably more at this point, where he called for a truce on social issues, in part because such a truce would allow the space for us to get a grand bargain on spending in place. Entitlement reform, interest payments, all the non-discretionary spending that's killing us. That was what he posited a decade ago. And that's going to kill him. Because Jim Banks is out there saying, no, not only can we do this, we can do all the other stuff too. We can go to cultural war with half the country and reform entitlements. We can have it all. And all it takes is the will for us to do that. And the Republican primary electorate in Indiana will probably lap that up. And Indiana isn't a bright ruby red state. Indiana had a Democratic governor Democratic senator, rather, and Jim Donnelly, I think until uh, a few years ago, elected in 2012. 20, yeah, he elected in 12? I believe so, yes, <laughs> um, because uh, Mur that was the Murdoch cycle, when a guy who was unpalatable to the general electorate said a bunch of stupid stuff and lost a winnable Senate seat for Republicans. And guess what Republicans are going to do? They're going to do the exact same thing they always do, which is blow winnable races by electing people who promise them the universe who promise cultural combat which they tend to lose republicans have all these complaints about how republicans constantly lose these culture wars and then elect the losers to execute the same strategy they lost the culture war in so this is just a uh, a source of my own uh inability to be comforted by by our political circumstances it's very interesting about Mitch Daniels because this is an inter this is a question about older versus younger voters and stuff like that. Mitch Daniels ended his tenure as governor of Indiana as a wildly popular. He was incredibly popular, and he was somebody who was constantly in the great mentioner's mouth as a presidential candidate. But he has a difficult marriage. It is said. Uh, and uh, he decided not to run in part for personal reasons and then <clears throat> became head of Purdue. And he is, you know, he's he's in his early 70s and all of that. But he was kind of a, an idol of a certain type of Republican, not a bomb thrower, but very serious fiscally. You know, and so if you only care about social issues and you don't care about fiscal issues, he's not your guy. But the question is, are there enough Republicans in Indiana who remember him from 10 years ago and love him that he gets into the race and he's immediately like, well, he was the best governor we ever had. I mean, you know, I'm excited to have him back in politics and I hear he did a good job at Purdue because he kept costs down I don't know. I mean, he'd certainly it, be competitive it, if he got in the race. The question is, why on earth would anybody subject themselves to that kind of torture who isn't, um, you know, obsessively uh, driven to seek power, which this which Mitch Daniels is not demonstrably. He's passed right. on it more than a couple of times, yeah. as opposed to Jim Banks, who is salivating over the prospect of having more authority and more power in Washington. To what end? Yeah. I don't know. You know, I, I promised, by the way, that we were going to talk a little about China. So we should talk a little about China before we go. Um, two very vital uh, stories uh, about China today that are 
maybe the most important news stories of the year in some ways, even though they're just, you know, out today and we'll, we won't really be. One of which is that uh, China's population has uh, shrunk in size for the first time in possibly in recorded history. Since 1961. Um, okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, because that was the year that Mao killed 60 million people. So uh, <clears throat> that's why the population shrank then. But um so the population has reduced in size. Now, in some ways, you could say this is the, the dream fulfillment of the one-child policy that has now been lifted that was in place for uh, three decades, making it illegal for people to have more than one child. Well, what was the purpose of that, which was to reduce the size of the population, reduce the population growth in China? But now you've not only reduced the population, you have now reversed population growth into population decline. And the problem is, and you China's have a lot population. of men of marriageable age who will not have mates that they can find in their own country. So, yeah, that, and they can't really go outside the country to find exactly. mates. And um, the population is aging, and the workforce is retiring, and they need workers to replace the current workforce. Which, and the number of people who are being bred to do that are half the size of the workforce that's now there. So 20 years from now, either China will have to basically allow massive immigration to create a new workforce or China's current economic program will come to a crashing end and it will be replaced by India, which is about to replace China as the world's most populous country. That's number one. Number two is uh, that they have seen... uh, an incredible, uh, incredible um, tightening of their GDP growth. Uh, they, of course, had a had a kind of zoom in GDP growth because of all of the um, export the export demands made on them uh, by the pandemic. Um, so they're getting poorer and smaller. When uh, you know when we had assumed that the trajectory of China's economy was that it was inevitably going to become the largest economy in the world. And it was inevitably going to overtake us and inevitably going to have all of this. It was going to be our great adversary, which I don't doubt that it is going to be our great adversary in some sense or other, but it's a, it's a hobbled, maybe a hobbled adversary and facing domestic difficulties that are not the kinds of things that you uh, you would want to see in your adversary because it makes them easier to be adversarial toward. Well, yeah, I mean, I think the question with these things, and I, I never know the answer, is: is does this make them more dangerous or less? Uh, more dangerous in terms of are they? What's that, Noah? Vastly more dangerous. Vastly Declining more powers dangerous. are always more right. dangerous, which is part of the reason why you've seen. China from a geostrategic perspective. I've never been on board, by the way, with all these straight line projections. But um, geostrategic perspective is one I've relied on. Is that because China understands itself to be a rising power and understands it has time on its side, sort of the time on its side, the Euclidean window sort of situation where you have declining powers that understand their declining powers and have a small window of opportunity to act in order to secure their interests in their regions. And perhaps that's changing, that perspective is changing in Beijing um, because they've been engaged in so many provocative exercises in the South China Sea and creating territory in the South China Sea and making noises about Taiwan. But a lot of, uh, you know, the national security professionals and, uh, you know, trade, uh, you know, people who watch trade have been noting that China's reliance on manufacturing is a profound vulnerability. That was the that was the staple of its economic growth, that it would build things. It would build whole cities without people in them. But the building was was necessary in order to make sure that they continued to grow at 7 percent, 8 percent, something along those lines, 8 percent GDP growth annually. Now, they're growing at 3 percent, which is about what we need to be um, you know, sustainable, sustainable growth trajectory. But that's not what they need based on their population and and the prosperity that they need to deliver to this growing middle class. And a growing middle class that isn't growing anymore gets restive. And it's dangerous for a regime that relies on that middle class as a source of stability and a base of uh, of legitimacy. Um, so yeah, this whole Chinese century trajectory could absolutely be upended by civil political disorder, or maybe perhaps a miscalculation in the form of a 
of a land grab akin to what's happening in, in Ukraine that goes disastrously wrong for the regime. Well, and and the opportunity for America as a foreign power to to be a little bit more nimble in responding to these changing circumstances is there. Walter Russell Mead wrote a piece about how the argument, the problem isn't that China's too rich, it's that India's too poor. India, we have more interest aligned with India right now than we do with China. It's a less hostile power to us, uh, but it's still, uh, you know, if it if it's going to be the largest country on earth, you know, it it does it buys a lot of its oil from Russia. It has, you know, all kinds of uh, allies with countries we do not deal with. So, but there is an opportunity there when you're talking about if you have a restive uh, growing middle class in China and and Chinese decline economically, why not why not make a greater stronger alliance with with another nuclear power that's growing. Yeah, I don't trust them either. Any former Soviet satellite has a long way to go to figure out how to gain my trust. Better back. than but China. It'd be nice. <laughs> but it'd be nice back to the to our, our own financial trajectory. It'd be nice if we had a place to park our debt that isn't Beijing, because they hold a lot of leverage over the United States in the form of all our currency, sitting on a ton of American currency. And in the event that we ever had some sort of a crisis as the world's reserve currency, they could cause a lot of trouble for um, uh, price stability in the United States. I mean, they could, although they need price stability. They need price stability in the United States themselves because of the financial um, morass that they are facing in terms of their own um, needs to deal with, a you know, an aging, you know, 800 million retirees. I mean, think about that for a minute 800 million retirees who's going to pay for them who's who's going to you know how even even if you have a horrible system of social welfare for for the elderly and bad health care and all of that it's still in, insanely expensive and your economy um is uh, slowing way down so it one thing you could say is that you know uh, people uh can't sleep at night when they think about uh the possibility of the Chinese military getting a vastly more um, activist and the question of whether or not there are signs that they may have uh, engaged in um, innovations, particularly aerospace innovations that we uh, are nervous about in terms of hypersonic aircraft and things like that. Um, it's a good thing for us that there is a competition for resources inside China, the way it was a good thing for us that there was a competition for resources inside the Soviet Union, because um, that that does provide us with an opening where we can, if we just don't do what some Republicans seem to want to do and harm our military readiness through ill-advised and stupid defense cuts and things like that, if we could just stay stable and steady uh, and remain the world's largest military with the with the most competent military force, um, we can do a lot to challenge, to cause the competition for resources inside China that could lead to the kind of political instability you would want to see inside a totalitarian country where basically they will face this challenge of whether or not they need to provide more liberty to people in order to create new economic opportunities that can get them out of the hole that they're digging for themselves and that they've now dug for themselves with the one child policy that was evident to everybody on earth when they started it and that said look the ma you know everybody who sort of follows demographics you know who said 30 years from now, you are going to be in a world of trouble if you persist, aside from the horrors of telling people they can't have more than one child. Do you have any idea what you're doing to yourself? Do you have any idea what it means to create the conditions under which you would have a you would have a growth rate of zero in your, you know, or a replacement rate of zero? I mean, you're not even you can't even get to a replacement, you practically can't get to a replacement rate of one. With the one China, with the one child policy, you can't get there because some number of people aren't going to aren't going to couple up and reproduce. And they're not going to have enough money to have lots of children. Anyway, they're it's 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 startling. And the future is now and it's happened. Um, but it does show how all of the propaganda, the pro 
China, you know, the sort of the slavish business propaganda about how China was the future in every possible way, how nauseating that was and how it was all a kind of bizarre 19th century boosterism about a country that wasn't even your own just because people were just slaving, slavering to get into the market and, you know, use the market and build the market and sell inside the domestic market and get get themselves a foothold for the next, you know, 100 years. And it also highlights a lot of the intellectual laziness around this this question for years too, uh, about this this like uh, this kind of reverence for command governance uh, and what it could accomplish. The Tom Friedman, exactly. if I could just have China's policies for a month, I could really straighten out America. Yeah, really nauseating stuff. Anyway, so uh, we will be back tomorrow for Abe, Christina, Noam, John Podhoritz. Keep the camera.